Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to another exciting podcast. I'm here, as always, with my colleague, Dr. Matthew Wheatley. That's right. And we are doing a podcast kind of close to the last podcast that we did, largely because we felt like there was a lot to talk about. There were a lot of articles that came out, and if you were at the OBS section meeting, we really didn't get a, a chance to really unpack those like we would have liked to at the time. So we're kind of dedicating this to some of the more recent research that's been going on in the world of OBS and kind of the peri-OBS community. And to an extent, I wanted to see if this was the kind of way we can communicate in the future uh, to people who come to the meetings and may not be able to uh, remember everything or take all the notes or maybe the minutes are not sufficient. Also, maybe this is the way to communicate to people who wanted to come to the meeting but couldn't. So with that, uh, Dr. Wheatley, did you go trick-or-treating? Uh, yeah, kids all dressed up. <laughs> they made me They made me dress up, so yeah. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> What'd you go as? Uh, an angry was? dad. I don't oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we were going to talk about a handful of articles uh, again this uh, this afternoon. You wanted to tell us something about what's going on in the world of syncope, right? Oh, yeah, it's super exciting, as syncope always is. Uh, so there are two articles that have come out in the last couple months. Uh, one of them is the PESIT trial, uh, which has been blowing up uh, social media and has even made some uh, national kind of lay press headlines. Uh, this is an Italian study that was done specifically to look for the prevalence of pulmonary embolism in patients who are hospitalized for syncope. Um, the second article is also an Italian study, the IRIS syncope study uh, that was published in Academic Emergency Medicine back in May. Um, and so uh, we'll start with a PESIT study. Um, so again, this was a multi-center study that was done 11 different hospitals in Italy the kind of salacious headline here was that they found pulmonary embolism in one out of every six patients hospitalized for the first episode of syncope. And I think this is what caused a lot of the national headlines and this is what uh, I think has led to maybe concerns either that uh, folks are missing PEs in some of the folks they see for syncope or that this is gonna lead to maybe some unnecessary testing ordering of D-dimers and uh, PE studies on patients admitting for syncope. You can also look at the uh, the notes from the podcast, and we'll put all the references in there also. So you can... Sure, yeah. So a couple interesting things from this, uh, kind of take-home points from this. Um, the first is that, yeah, I mean, yes, it's concerning that so many of these folks had uh, PEs, and we obviously want to make, uh, make sure that when we're seeing folks in the emergency department, uh, that we're doing our due diligence to work up potential causes for uh, their their PEs. Uh, the second thing was uh, a. This is a. The second thing was that this is a, a study that was done in Italy. And granted, it was a multi-center study, but it can't necessarily be reproduced. Uh, it would need to be restudied to be reproduced here in the United States. Next thing is that their average age was very old, 76 years, or at least on the older spectrum. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's something specific about how older patients present with PEs. Uh, do they present less as the chest pain, shortness of breath, or do they present more as or more as syncope? 
the next bit is that these were patients that were admitted already. So the, they entered the study after the decision to admit was already made. Um, and if you actually look at the methods in there, there were, there were a large number of patients. Uh, there were over 2,500 patients that were the initial presentation in the emergency department for syncope. And 1,800 of those, almost 1,900 of those were discharged. So we don't know any information about right. those folks. That was one of the things that jumped out at me. That doesn't necessarily mean this was a bad study, but out of that 1,900 patients, how many of those people had uh, PEs? You know, you know they, they talked about one of the diagnoses that they sent people home with was uh, vagal response uh, or vasovagal syncope. And I, that's really just what I think. You know, it's not like yeah. we put these people on a tilt table or anything and sort it out in the ER. Right. Well, and it, one of the questions that comes out of this is PE present versus PE as a causation for their syncope. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can argue that the 1,900 patients that got discharged in the study were well enough to go home. Did some mm -hmm. of them have a small incidental or small non-clinical PE? Right. We're finding Possibly, out that happens all the time. Yeah. And, and – I, you know, I'm not going to say that no harm came of not diagnosing the PEs in these folks because we don't have follow-up information on those folks. But mm -hmm. the the I think the thing more germane to what we're talking about here is that there's no discussion. There was no discussion of the decision process for who got admitted and who didn't. Right. Um, so I don't know. Was it just gestalt of well, this person looks old and they've got some mm -hmm. comorbidities, so we're going to admit them for a cardiac workup? Okay. The second bit is that the pulmonary embolisms in this study, by and large, were not small. Only 6.9% uh, had subsegmental PEs, 42% uh, had main pulmonary artery, 25% had low bar, and tw another 26% had uh, segmental. So these were, these were large PEs now, and, and they tended to be more prevalent in folks with signs and symptoms of DVT and PE. Mm -hmm. so, so they would get a well score... Then, right. I think they were ordering dimers on them. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think they would order anybody who got admitted would get a dimer, and then if the dimer were positive, they would scan them. Right. Um, and you know, when I was reading it, my thought was, is what's the suspicion of the clinician before they did anything? Right. And in my mind, what I'd like to believe is that an older person with an unexplained tachycardia. Syncope or no syncope, I would be thinking about them having a PE. Yeah. So was this really a shock to the system or, to, or a change in how we should consider working out PEs or syncope, particularly when we put a lot of syncope patients in the OBS unit? What do you think? Yeah, and that's, I, I mean, I think that was my concern in just reading the headline in the article that, you know, we've been, and we'll talk about it a little bit with the IRIS study. I feel like there's been a lot of studies that have, said that all the, we're doing a lot of over-testing when it comes to syncope. Um, and obviously it's good to have a balance in the literature. You don't wanna, you don't wanna move totally in one direction where we're not working folks up. But I think there is a, there's a good, there's a lot of robust literature that says, by and large, people don't need to be admitted with syncope unless they have hard, hard positive outcomes. My takeaway from this study specifically is that in a patient that who I am admitting or putting in the observation unit, with an unexplained syncope. And so if I, if I don't have a really good idea of what caused their syncope, uh, I need to really make sure I've circled back and thought about PE in them. Mm -hmm. um, that it's, it, especially if they're, you know, in the older age spectrum, 60s, 70s, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, they had a significant 
significant number of patients that had them here. So if I haven't, if I am thinking I need to admit them just for their overall risk profile, uh, then I need to make sure that, you know, I've done a, either considered that I don't think they have it by gestalt, or if I think they might, then, you know, calculate a well score, send a D-dimer, do a PE protocol if I think it's appropriate. It's definitely, a, I, I'm going to uh, avoid the temptation to just order D-dimers reflexively on everybody and, and going to uh, encourage my residents and, and other faculty to do the same. But I, I don't know what your take on that, that was. That's, that's essentially my take also, because when we first started talking about it, it was passed along, passed amongst the OBS faculty here as, is this something we should consider doing in the CDU? And what we thought was no, uh, we shouldn't consider ruling people out in the CDU for PE. But what I think this article does say that is different than what I have been teaching the residents in the way I thought about PE is that there's people that had large PEs, all be them old, uh, and these PEs made them passed out and they got up and walked away. When I was in residency and even now, the PEs that I thought would make people pass out were PEs that would make you stay passed out, you come in as an arrest or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's people out there that have enough reserve to get up and walk away and so I think that that piece of the PE part of syncope for me uh, has adjusted just a little bit. The second one, uh, I don't know if it's kind of a counterpoint to it, but it's the uh, Numeroso article from Academic Emergency Medicine. And it's interesting, actually, what kind of tipped me off to this. I got, you know, one of those like, uh, you know, throwaway mass emails from AEM or uh, but Jeff Klein, the new uh, editor in chief for AEM. Uh, this was his like editor's pick for the month of May and said uh, that this was kind of an important article for syncope. And as we look at things like meaningful use and just avoiding of overtesting, having an article like this that really uh, looks at outcomes uh, of patients, you know, even though we think are moderate risk and finds that, you know, by and large, it is safe to send them home uh, is good. So. What this article is titled is Short-Term Prognosis and Current Management of Syncopal Patients at Intermediate Risk Results from the IRIS Study or Intermediate Risk Syncope. Um, And so what they did is they took a cohort of patients with undetermined syncope uh, and analyzed uh, data in terms of personal demographics uh, and comorbidities and then looked at kind of where they, their destination, length of stay, and incidences. 30-day events, and cost. Um, Basically, low-risk patients were young, less than 50, and had no history of heart disease, no significant comorbidities or family history. High-risk patients were folks that had actively decompensated comorbidities, actively decompensated heart failure, or definite uh, abnormal EKGs, including blocks, uh, widened QRS, prolonged or short QT intervals, that kind of thing. Uh, Intermediate patients were those with that had a history of heart disease, such as CAD or heart failure, uh, but weren't having any active symptoms. There was no active chest pain. There was no uh, evidence that there was a uh, heart failure exacerbation. And I think this is the difference between uh, what this study showed and previous recommendations, either from the San Francisco syncope rule or from the ASAP clinical policies, which recommend admission or at least to consider admission for folks with a history of CHF. Um, So what they did, they looked at 347 patients over about six months and 
they looked at intermediate versus high risk, and they basically found that risk factors for uh, cardiogenic causes of syncope were predictive for uh, poor outcomes. And they found that uh, patients who are intermediate risk, so again, that's the patients with stable cardiac disease, no active comorbidities, had a serious event rate of 0.8%, whereas patients at high risk, you know, decompensated comorbidities had a serious event rate of 27.8. Most of the intermediate risk patients were admitted to a floor or to an ED observation unit, uh, and they found that you know, if these folks were discharged or put in a lower level of care, you could save a mean of 8.8 .8 bed days uh, or possibly uh, up to $270,000 in cost. So they really recommend that these folks uh, with intermediate risk uh, could potentially be safely discharged. Um, so my takeaway from this, and again, you know, as with the previous study, this was a study not done on U.S. soil, so really, you know, it does need to be if I said it for the previous study, it holds for this one. It really needs to be reproduced before we can, you know, wholesale uh, take it and apply it here. Uh, my thought is that some of these intermediate patients, uh, I'm going to be a little less gun shy about. And, you know, if I'm really worried about them, maybe put them in the OBS unit as opposed to put them uh, in a floor upstairs. And then some of the ones in the OBS unit, if they're looking really good and I feel like their follow-up's good and they feel okay going home, maybe consider discharging them if, you know, again, if they have stable coronary disease, or CHF. So I think we wanted to shift gears a little bit away from the uh, syncope stuff, and uh, I know you were able to look through some of the abstracts from ASEP. I know we had an ASEP meeting was just a couple weeks ago, and so there were a couple good abstracts, and I think there was one on uh, sickle cell disease, mm -hmm. um, which I know is a big issue for a lot of people who are managing observation units. Uh, a lot of times, uh, hospital administration looks at the ED or the ED observation as a way to as a location for care for people presenting with vaso-occlusive crises. So um, what kind of stuff were you finding out about this? Well, again, like we've talked about this at conference and whatnot, and we, we agree that it's not probably the best thing to be in the OBS unit, but people are doing it. And so we did find this uh, one pretty interesting abstract here. The abstract is number 76 in the uh, annals abstract section, and it's entitled Effect of a Sickle Cell Vaso-Occlusive Crisis OBS Unit Pathway on the Admission Rate for Frequent Emergency Department Users. And what they did through retrospective chart review is they evaluated what they were already doing, which was having patients who had vaso-occlusive crises without like another major complication uh, be admitted to an observation unit and essentially be on a PCA in a standardized fashion. And if your pain was still out of control after 24 hours, you would be admitted. So what they found was is there was a difference in the number of admissions that the frequent utilizers would have versus the number of the less frequent utilizers. And they defined these groups of utilization with four as more than four is a frequent utilizer, one to three uh, is moderate, and then there's uh, less than one uh, a year, being someone who didn't come very often or a less frequent utilizer. And what they found was is that the people that came a lot, the frequent utilizers, were more likely uh, to come to the OBS unit and then not be admitted. So all that kind of sounds good, and it kind of makes you think that maybe this OBS unit pathway might be something that we would use for the more frequent utilizers. 
of the uh, sickle cell uh, pathway in the ER. However, I would posit that nationally and as far as the benchmark is concerned, the admission rate that we think is ideal for observation patients is about 15%. And their admission rates for these were considerably higher. And I don't think that they had much in there, which maybe was an opportunity. Maybe they looked at it and it wasn't there. I think that what they don't have in there is like, what are the things that make these people more likely to be admitted? Their admission rates for the people who they defined as frequent utilizers was like 22%. That's like one in five people, uh, which I kind of think is a lot. And the people that just came once a year or or so, they got admitted some 36% of the time. So one in three. Which is which is a whole lot, and, and that, that that actually makes sense. You know, if you've got somebody that only turns up once a year, I mean, they're probably coming when they're really sick. They mm-hmm. probably manage the vast majority of their crises at home, and or or in the outpatient setting. And something about this crisis, whether there's a concomitant illness, made them come into the ED. And so, if you're not getting better with ED treatment, it's hard to it's hard to imagine that you're going to get better in 24 hours. Right. Uh, I do like that kind of side conclusion of what they came up with, is that you know maybe the observation unit isn't for people who just show up once because they kind of yeah. select themselves out to being more sick in the ER setting in the first place. But even if you just use it for the patients that they thought would be optimal, like these frequent utilizers, one in five is still a lot. Yeah. And I think... Uh, I, think that, I think that parallels uh, things we see with other kind of chronic painful conditions mm-hmm. that that, uh, yeah, I know that there's a lot of countertransference and other kind of baggage that goes along with patients with chronic pain, whether it's, you know, gastroparesis or chronic uh, musculoskeletal pain complaints. And, you know, even when I think you, you want to give the patients the benefit of the doubt and treat their pain, you know, aggressively, uh, you still wind up with kind of an inability to predict who stays and who goes. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very difficult situation. Right. I, nobody's saying that these uh, patients that have vaso-occlusive crises are easy to treat. Uh, what I, I do think we are saying is that I don't think there's enough evidence to say that the OBS unit is the best pa- yeah. place to treat them simply because they're hard to treat and we can't really put a finger on what's going on with them and why they're in pain. I, I actually think there's evidence to the contrary. Uh, there's, there's evidence that an alternative path works, and that is having a specialty-run sickle cell clinic that runs almost like an oncology infusion center. The advantage to this is, number one, it's run by people who know the disease and who manage it in an outpatient, i.e. hematologists. Two, it's attended daily by uh, nurse practitioners or nurses who are familiar with the protocols. When they've studied it head-to-head with ED, uh, we tend to admit the patients sooner. Uh, and I think we're also less aggressive in treating vaso-occlusive crises uh, with higher doses of narcotic medications, which at this point are the only things that have really been shown to treat uh, vaso-occlusive crises. And so there's even studies that have shown that the the patients themselves prefer this approach to, to having to come to the ED. If they can go to a center and get their you know, infusions, get you know, fluids, get their pain medicines in kind of a specialty center with people who know how to take care of them, it's a lot better than going to the ED. A lot fewer delays, a lot fewer admissions. 
I mean, it's all well and good to say that. Obviously, a lot of people practice in settings yeah, we're, where we're really not, spoiled here. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Uh, practice in settings where that's not possible. But what I would encourage you to do is is make sure you get a hematologist at the table with you at the table with you. I mean, uh, if you know, obviously every every site and every ED and OBS unit are, are different. And uh, you know, if the local you know, political culture, whatnot, is such that you know you can't, as an OBS director, say no. I'm I'm not going to care for these patients in my OBS unit. Then you can at least make it better for the patients and better for the uh, better for the system uh, to set up some good inclusion exclusion criteria. Really work with your hematologist and really have some kind of hard stops in terms of you know appropriate pain levels for the patients to go home. And when they when they hit that time window, uh, you know, convert them to inpatient. Uh, if they're not appropriate for discharge, and then you've got some data to take to your take to your C-suite and say, look, we've been doing this for mm-hmm. you know six months, and this is you know this is our admit percentage. And and I think you know I really like the idea that you just mentioned about uh, trying to do the right thing for the patient. You know, if you look at this article from the health services standpoint and the frequent utilizer piece, I mean, maybe putting them in the OBS unit is your opportunity to get case and ma- case management involved and start getting creative about solutions to having patients show up back to the ER. It's not that, like these sickle cell patients are destined to just come to the ER again and again and again. Right. They had a significant number of people who only came once a year yeah. and were really sick, yeah. right? So I think, you, you know, if, if you have to do it, I think there's opportunity to do it beyond just having a PCA or using it as a, a place where people can uh, get the medications. I think there is an opportunity to do more. Uh, again, I, I, I agree with you that we just don't necessarily know going in right. what the things are that differentiate the kinds of patients that are appropriate uh, and hit, will hit this 15% discharge. Right. Well, and don't use, you know, just like, uh, unfortunately, like the ED uh, tends to be, you know, the answer to all the systems issues in your healthcare system or in your hospital. The, the OBS units tend to be that way for the inpatient side. They tend to, and, and so... You know, it's an opportunity to really advocate for the patients and make sure it's not that, you know, we're, you know, make sure you're not taking care of them because nobody else wants to. I mean, it's a good opportunity to elevate the discussion regarding care for them within your health system. But right. um, it's uh, obviously difficult. So, so there's something that's kind of more novel. We probably don't do enough or do not enough to where it's uh, appropriate. To something that uh, we do way too much of. And uh, probably still not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> still not appropriate, you're right. Uh, non-invasive testing for coronary artery disease. There was this study put together by the AHRQ, uh, and it's uh, it's free. You can get the PDF. And uh, they, they basically put together a systematic review of a lot of the, the, te- the papers about uh, stress testing and outcomes, and they try to see if they can standardize, you know, how useful these things are and give some future directions of research. A lot of the things in the paper are, are not germane to a conversation about OBS. However, uh, I thought it was extremely interesting from a couple of standpoints that uh, we talk about in, on this podcast and nationally, uh, and uh, that's with the uh, different types of outcomes. So what they found uh, through uh, systematic searches of uh, all of the popular databases, Ovid, Cochrane, blah, 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 uh, they found about 17,000 citations, and they picked out 46 of the ones that they thought were the best put together. And uh, they had 
comparisons within these studies of the different non-invasive testing modalities for low to intermediate risk patients uh, that could occur either inpatient or OBS or wherever. Uh, and then they looked at the uh, outcomes in terms of MIs, hospitalizations, mortality, et cetera, et cetera. And the different modalities that they discussed in this paper were coronary CTA, uh, SPECTs, uh, PETs, uh, that's kind of what we do at Emory Midtown, and uh, they also had a category for usual care. Although usual care is not really defined across these 46 studies, uh, but generally that means no stress testing, uh, according to this uh, uh, in the discussion period or the discussion portion of the paper. And basically they found that there's no differences uh, in order to recommend one of these tests over the other. There's no differences in uh, the rate of MI, all-cause mortality across these groups, uh, and uh, repeat hospitalizations. That's probably, that's very similar to the JAM article from a couple of Januarys ago. And uh, I think this is uh, more evidence that the JAM article didn't talk specifically about mortality. But again, they didn't really find a difference amongst these uh, modalities, one of which included no stress testing for these low and intermediate risk patients. Now, the uh, other very interesting uh, piece of this paper, I mean, there's 363 pages of it, but... Uh, <laughs> you read every one of them. <laughs> I read every one of them. But there's a, a table, I think it's table three, that uh, compares like their cold sensitivity and specificity for the different stress testing modalities. Uh, across the papers that they reviewed, and uh, I found that to be extremely interesting. What they found was for suspected coronary artery disease compared with the angiography, uh, now granted there's some uh, some workup bias in here, but they thought the, uh, they found that the cold sensitivity for all of this was about uh, 100% or so with a low radiation dose coronary CTA. Seems kind of high. However, uh, the other uh, modalities weren't as good as I initially thought. Positron uh, emission tomography, a PET, uh, they found is only 90 to 91% sensitive for finding coronary artery disease at all. So even though there's not uh, a lot of uh, difference in what you do here to get mortality, like you're putting them on a treadmill or whatever you do uh, for not that great of a test. Uh, and the sensitivity they had for uh, an exercise ECG was 62%. SPECT, the one that most people do, uh, they have that at uh, about 88%. So, you know, at the end of this paper here, they have these tests that are just so-so, uh, other than coronary artery C CTA, that really aren't changing uh, the or moving the needle along for uh, mortality if you look at the breadth of studies. So, I mean, this is kind of what we've been saying. I think the uh, national conversation is probably going to shift to less stress testing of these low and intermediate risk patients, but I think this uh, review kind of adds uh, a different kind of take on things that we are kind of starting to see more in the literature. Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to determine what exactly will it will take to kind of change practice, and I think what... I don't know in your impression, I think what most people still hold to is the ACC AHA recommendations right. for provocative testing within 72 hours uh, of any kind of presentation for uh, ACS. Um, and that's very vaguely worded, um, you know, and I'm sure what we consider concern for ACS and what they consider concern for ACS are two different things. Uh, but I, I think 
I'm, and I'm not sure. I don't see any evidence that they're going to change that right. recommendation anytime soon. Right. Um, you know, I did hear one lecturer say it's, you know, it's up to us to decide whether or not to follow the guidelines. I mean, the guidelines mm -hmm. are not, they don't dictate your practice necessarily. Um, I do know still, though, that people, you know, missed MIs are a real thing. They're not as real as they used to be, but, you know, right. litigation for them is still real and it still motivates ED physicians to make certain choices. Right. I, I choice think to just do something. People want to just do something. And as long as those guidelines are out there, it seems yeah. like the stress test is the thing. Well, I think what it's going to take is more ED-based studies, kind of like what Simon Mailer and his group are doing, uh, or Martin Than, where they take a low-risk group of patients and discharge them from the ED and then and, and follow them uh, out and say, you know, this group of folks didn't get any provocative testing at all, and they did fine at 30 days. There was no mace. I, I think a lot of folks even with things like the heart score, would say, yeah, I know this guy's not having a heart attack and they're predicted to have low mortality, but I don't know that they're going to get a stress. They don't have a primary doctor. Yeah. They're not going to get a stress test within 72 hours, so I'm just going to keep them and do it. And so I think what you need is more ED-based studies which show that you know, the, the provocative not having a provocative test does not lead to a bunch of people dropping dead in 30 right. days. Or so. Just, yeah. So I think that's at least whether or not the cardiologist recommendations change. I think the ED-based recommendations in terms of who we refer for specialized testing at all will uh, will change once we get more of those studies. So. I agree with you. Man, there is a lot to talk about, man, and this is a long podcast. You know, we're probably going to pepper in some more new studies when we do uh, some podcasts coming up. But look at the uh, show notes on the uh, podcast website. It's supposed to come up on your podcast at the bottom there uh, when you take a look. And we'll put all the ones that we thought were kind of interesting and didn't get a chance to talk about. And we'll put the abstracts on there. But again, um, thanks to Dr. Wheatley for uh, sharing this time with us as we talk about like some of my favorite things which is you know the hard science and uh kind of myth busting i love that sort of part about obs and we can just change it you know i love that till next time uh again if you don't have obs you got a problem